is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. A reminder from the White House, as if we need one, that COVID is still around this winter. The Biden administration releasing its winter COVID preparedness plan. It includes giving out more free tests, monitoring subvariants, and protecting nursing homes and high-risk individuals. We'll go in-depth into whether all this can prevent a surge and how bad that surge could be. The pandemic has created more jobs and business opportunities for certain people. We are going to explain who and exactly how that happened. And the big question in Congress is, who is going to be the next Speaker of the House? Kevin McCarthy wants it, really wants it, but he is far from a lock. Russia is uh, warning the U.S. not to send some missiles to help Ukraine fend off Russian attacks. Russia says there will be consequences. We'll go in-depth. And there were consequences to leaving the British royal family, as Harry and Meghan detail in their latest documentary episodes. We'll look into their claims and the reaction from the royal family. Yes, they've had a very tough life. Extremely hard. (laughs) Yeah. We start with the uh, White House's winter COVID plans. With us again is Dr. Sabrina Sumu. She's an infectious disease physician at Boston Medical Center and professor at Boston University's School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. So, uh, as I said at the top, uh, as if we really need a reminder, but I guess maybe some people do. Uh, COVID is not exactly in the rearview mirror, although many people would like it to be. It is still very much here. People still get it. More people are getting it. it is what the White House uh, doing or planning to do enough? Yeah, no, I think it's a great idea. So, number one, I was very pleased to see that um, that free tests will once again be available uh, because the way that we try to prevent um, infection from spreading in the community is to provide people an opportunity, an easy way for them to, to diagnose their infection so that they could take measures. So I think that that's a very good start. Is the surge going to be as bad as some of them are saying it might be, or are they kind of overstating it to get more people to think about masking up and, and taking precautions? Yeah, no, we're in a very interesting place in this pandemic. It, and even today, even more so than at other times, it's very hard to predict because what we have now is uh, we have a thankfully high level of population level immunity. So people have been exposed to the virus either through infection or through vaccination. And so it's a little bit hard to predict what's actually going to happen when um, when a lot of us spend more time indoors. Uh, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic um, that uh, if people continue to get vaccinated, get the updated booster, that we'll actually, uh, you know, not see something as bad as what we saw last winter. I, I don't expect that, I expect it to be as bad. Like, I don't expect to see a million cases um, like we were seeing uh, last winter. Um, but I'm hoping that... If we continue to vaccinate and people continue to take precautions, that will actually ride this one out. Let me ask you this. Uh, I was just uh, only a few weeks ago. I was in Spain uh, and I got COVID again when I was in Spain. It was the third time I've gotten it, even though I'm fully vaccinated. And I was very interested and surprised to learn that in Spain, they now treat it COVID, that is. As pretty much a cold. Uh, I spoke with the doctor there. They don't particularly get upset by it. They don't recommend that you isolate. They say, go about your your daily life. If you get really sick, 
check yourself into a hospital. Otherwise, treat it like you would treat uh, a common cold. So I'm still deciding whether or not that is a more rational way for a society to now deal with what is clearly an endemic disease or if it's going too much in the wrong direction. What I, w- what I would say is by looking at the statistics, right, we have 400 people dying in this country every day. That corresponds to over 100,000 people dying over a, a calendar year. That's worse than 50 to 60,000 that we see in a very bad flu year. So there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think that we're in a very different place than we were before. And the key thing is going to be to use those measures that we know work. Vaccinate, vaccination, using tests, using masking when cases are high. Um, and especially the big one is using those outpatient treatments that are now available, such as Paxlovid. So I'm because of the number of people who are dying every day, I am and the the, the number of people who are still susceptible, I'm not ready to to just, you know, um do nothing. Um, I do think that we're in a better place, but we still need to use those measures so that we don't have over 100,000 people dying every every year of COVID-19. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Sabrina Sumu, uh, infectious diseases physician at Boston Medical Center and professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Coming up, the U.S. is reportedly making plans to ship some missiles to Ukraine, which is leading to threats by Russia. And the latest Harry and Meghan documentary episodes detail a very tense split from the royal family that includes anger and screaming. And when she was alive, apparently the queen was not amused. Mm. So uh, we get more, you know, get, get more than that. Wait, do that again. Hello. <laughs> okay. Uh, don't go to England. <laughs> <laughs> they may not let you in, so don't go. <laughs> they kick me out. Yeah. Right now, though, uh, we've uh, detailed the many problems that the pandemic has caused people, uh, but it hasn't been all bad all the time for everyone. In fact, it's actually opened up more jobs for people who have disabilities. With us now is Cheryl Bates-Harris, who is a senior disability advocacy specialist the National Disability Rights Network. Cheryl, thanks for being with us. So it, it sounds uh, at first, you know, when you first hear it, it, you know, people with disabilities may have benefited in terms of jobs because of the pandemic. And then, of course, the question becomes, why would that be? Well, that's um, a good question. And yes, it certainly has proved beneficial for people with disabilities. I think one thing that COVID has done is it has kind of um, required that employers take um, a really good look at what are really the essential functions of the job and and looking at that in, in relation to the fact that, you know, technology is so different these days. And they figured out over the last almost three years now that work can be done remotely using technology and that the technology is not really as expensive as people thought it would be. So it's opened up a lot of opportunities for people to work remotely using the latest um, technology um, to, to do that. And I it so it's opened up a lot of work opportunities where previously, 
it might have been considered, you know, special treatment if a person with a disability worked at home. But now it's the norm. It's, you know, very normal and people are able to maintain their employment by working remotely. You know, technology has always been getting better. So the technology was always there to let more people work from home if they chose to, but it just didn't seem to take off. So the pandemic really kind of uh, kind of jump-started that, and that's helped some people that uh, are better able to work from home than actually going into an office somewhere. But do you think this change might have come about had it uh, had it not been for the pandemic? If the pandemic didn't happen, do you think we would still see this structural change? No, I don't think we would have. I think there was a lot of resistance and employers often, you know, often look at, well, you have to be able to perform 100% of all the work that needs to be done. And, you know, a a very clear and simple example is in my office. Um, We have printers and copiers that jam all the time. So, you know, it's like, no, you can't work from home because basically if the printer jams, you know, you've got to be able to fix it to to keep working. And I think that, you know, forcing remote work has um, enabled employers to look at things in a whole different, you know, light. Um, In the situation that I described, we always have one person, at least in the office, to address, you know, some of those issues that could go wrong. But we certainly have, most of us have been much more productive, not working remotely rather than commuting and wasting the time and energy, quite frankly, that it takes to commute. And for a person with a disability, that time and energy commuting could um, otherwise diminish, you know, their attention at work. So it's really beneficial to conserving people's energy, to getting the work done, and it's opened up a lot of opportunities that weren't available to them in the past. But do you uh, have any concerns that as more and more companies are now reverting back to the old ways, and some companies are even insisting that employees come back to the to the office, that the gains made in uh, the past year or so by people with disabilities because they've been able to work at home may start being chipped away at? Um, I would hope that that wouldn't happen. I mean, there's a concept in the ADA that requires that reasonable accommodation be afforded to people with disabilities. And we get asked the question a lot about whether or not telework will continue. But I think the reluctance of telework in the past has always been, are people really working? Are they really doing what they're supposed to be doing? Or are they playing video games on TV? And so I think that people with disabilities can certainly request to continue to telework as a reasonable accommodation. And I think most employers would agree that their experience with it has been good over the last three years, Um, which is not to say that they may call everybody else who doesn't have a disability back to working. But that's not really what we're seeing a lot. Um, I happened to walk through Washington, D.C. last week and was greatly surprised by the number of empty offices and empty buildings that they are. And many of the businesses are selling their buildings and and moving everybody remotely. So I think it's a trend that will absolutely continue. What we don't want to see, and there's always a downside of something, what we don't want to see is that people with disabilities will be unnecessarily um, segregated. Hmm. And in future, it's, you know, 
all people with disabilities work at home because right. there is that benefit of interaction with coworkers and right. that socialization part. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Cheryl Bates here, a senior disability advocacy specialist for the National Disability Rights Network. Coming up, uh, Russia has some uh, very strong words and not so veiled threats directed at the U.S. over plans to give Ukraine missiles. And you know how when you watch a, a movie, any movie really, about uh, you know the royal family in in uh, England, it's always very sedate and very sort of everything is very sort of in hushed tones. Yeah. Well, it turns out there was a lot of <laughs> screaming and yelling. At least if you if you believe mm-hmm. Harry and Meghan in their new uh, Netflix. Uh, documentary series apparently uh, a lot of people were not in a good mood you'd think they have people to scream for them <laughs> no they they actually have to vocalize on their own okay yes right so. now though uncertainty growing over who's going to be the next speaker of the house it was presumed months ago uh, that uh, california's kevin mccarthy would be a shoo-in if republicans were to win a majority they won the majority but now republicans uh get that and mccarthy is a far cry from a lock to become the next speaker even with donald trump uh, helping him annie carney is a congressional correspondent for the new york times a uh, recent story that uh, she wrote details the difficulties that uh, McCarthy's having. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, what's the issue here? Why uh, why suddenly is McCarthy uh, not a shoe in And does it go back to Donald Trump, who is now trying to help him, but before Donald Trump didn't have some nice things to say about him? Is that is that what this all comes down to? Um. Yes and no. Um what it really comes down to is that the red wave that everyone predicted in the midterm elections failed to materialize and Republicans have a very narrow majority with 222 seats. Uh, This is an internal election where he needs the backing of a majority of his members. So he needs 218 votes to become speaker. And this, uh, you know, he can only lose four. So it's, it doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. He always, in, in the case where there was a real red wave, losing four or five you know, people would be no problem for him. So you could say that's related to Trump because um, some of the candidates that he, you know, backed uh, ended up not winning. He influenced the entire midterm cycle with um, candidates who couldn't win in some in some districts. So yeah, that's part of the problem. Um, and I, I don't think in general, you know, these some of these extreme members who are saying publicly that they absolutely will oppose McCarthy, just view him as this, you know, establishment figure. And I I think that is his issue, not based on his up and down relationship with Trump so much. Okay, but Annie, what is it that the people in his party, the Republican Party, who are questioning whether he should be the House Speaker, what do they want him to do? What positions do they want him to take that he has not taken already? Well, this is part of his problem. So this is not the first time that, you know, in 2015, Paul Ryan had more than 30 people opposing him on the secret ballot. Pelosi had to win over some 40 members in 2018. The difference here is that he's contending with something different, which is a sizable group who, you know, are chaos agents. They don't necessarily want anything. They want to, you know, obstruct um, but there is one thing that so it's so it's hard to negotiate with people who 
you know, want to upend government and it's not clear what you can give them or what their price is for getting their vote. So, uh, so wait, wait, but let me interrupt because I want to make sure that that our listeners are clear on what you're saying, because what I think you're saying is that he's dealing with a faction within his own party who what got elected to Congress for the sole purpose of blocking Congress. I mean, in some sense, they're motivated by shrinking the federal government or upending the government completely. They're, you know, they they're not there to, you know, vote yes on things. Um, so it's hard to work with that. There is one thing that is a sticking point in these negotiations, and that is the jargony term motion to vacate, which means um changing the rules to allow for so that any member could force a snap vote on the floor to get rid of the speaker at any time be basically giving uh making mccarthy agree to like let them get rid of him at any moment to point um, a, to point a gun at him so to speak basically. and pull the trigger and whenever they want to exactly and so far that's a non-starter for him um, so that's where things are. But yeah, I mean, the difference between Pelosi negotiating her way to the speakership in 2018 when there were some holdouts and this is that it's not clear what they want substantively. All right. Thank you. Annie uh, Carney, congressional correspondent for The New York Times and uh, writing about the difficulties uh, McCarthy's having in becoming the next speaker. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia very upset over reported plans by the U.S. to send Ukraine a shipment of Patriot missiles. It's warning the U.S. that giving the missiles to Ukraine could lead to unpredictable consequences and threaten global security. Yeah, the goal of giving Ukraine the missiles would be to counter Russia's recent attacks, especially from the air. John Spencer is a retired U.S. Army major and chair of urban warfare warfare studies at the Madison Policy Forum. He's also co-author of a new book. It's called Understanding Urban Warfare. John, thanks for being with us. Why would Russia be so concerned about the U.S. giving Ukraine Patriot missiles? I mean, we've given them a lot of other stuff. Why, in particular, the concern about Patriot? Because they're one of the most advanced air defense systems in the world. They're reliable. Um, everybody knows what they can do. And it takes away what Russia's main strategy in this phase of the war, which is attack Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, its power grid, its water supply. This missile defense system, while it can't protect all of Ukraine, it, even Russia knows that it, it then would back up Russia's heavy bombers its cruise missiles, its ability to track what's being sent into Ukraine. Since over the last month and plus, that's all Ukraine, uh, Russia has been doing is just launching these missiles that Ukraine really has no defense against. And this is a defensive weapon. So the idea of this escalates for Russia in any way is just ridiculous. So Russia is rattling this saber. Do they have a saber rattle here? What What could they do in response other than uh, threaten to use uh, nukes at some point? And is that a reasonable fear to have? Right. No, this always comes up, right? Because nuclear, this is this is Russia showing its inferior, its weakness, so that it can't win on the battlefield. So it decided to start attacking, committing war crimes daily in front of the world's eyes, Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. Now it's rattling its saber that this will, this will escalate some global consequence. I mean, the only person putting the global security at risk is Russia, which is ironic. They sit on the UN Security Council to prevent this kind of thing. But what can it do now? 
I mean, I'm sure it could do more horrible war atrocities in Ukraine than it already has. Nuclear card, I personally don't think so because, look, it's a red line that the world recognizes. If Russia uses a nuclear weapon or a weapon of mass destruction at all in Ukraine or anywhere else, it changes the world. It ends the Putin regime and it ends the Russian Federation as we know it because the world would have to respond. You know, in the months uh, past, we've talked with many different experts who said uh, at that point when Ukraine was was clearly, uh, you know, beating Russia and it was it was pushing them back. It was even retaking some of the territory that the Russians took over. And a lot of the experts we talked to a few months ago said, yeah, but the real test for the Ukrainians is going to become winter time, And when the winter happens, it could reverse and it could be to Russia's advantage. Well, the winter is, you know, we're just days away from the official start of winter and dare say it's already cold in Ukraine. Is something now changing that dynamic that might be shifting in Russia's favor, as some experts had predicted? Uh, I don't, I wouldn't agree with those experts by far. I mean, winter, of course, impacts both sides, but the people that have the strongest interior lines, as in the Ukrainians can switch out their personnel in the trenches or on the in the the cities and they can warn them russia is the one who has the mobilization problems the manpower crisis the ability to even feed clothe resupply switch out their forces i don't know who who would think that the winter is going to be more advantage to the russians that's just crazy i mean the ukrainians are now getting winter advice winter equipment from some of the best winter soldiers in the world like the Finnish people and, and like that. Um, Russia wants the winter to slow things down. Right? Putin needs to slow this war down because it's losing in every aspect. The winter, to, in my opinion, plays to the Ukrainians' favor. They're the ones on that have the initiative. Their, their soldiers are better motivated, better clothed, and better fed. Well, I, I'll tell you what, what the thinking was of some of the experts who said that. What they were saying was that as the war shifted more and more toward the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, you were dealing less with uh, urban warfare, which they felt was in the advantage or to the advantage of the Ukrainians. And because it was on more open fields, it would have been more to the advantage of the Russians. And then when you add into the mix the cold and and the composition of the soil that changes, of course, in the winter, that the Russians would have the upper hand. That was their thinking anyway. Yeah, I mean, this is the nuances of us warfare scholars, right? So for me, all roads lead to urban. Like what battle have we talked about in Ukraine that's not in, about urban terrain or in urban terrain? The Battle of Kherson, Kharkiv, now Bakhmut. Donetsk, uh, Luhansk, they're all heading towards cities because cities sit at the, the crossroads, either they're the, the train you want or the train you have to pass through. So even in the open terrain, advantage Ukraine because of the Western weapons, like the multiple launch rocket systems that we've seen. So I just don't see where anybody gets to the point showing where this there's a Russian advantage in open or in urban terrain in winter or in summer. The, the Russians are in a foreign land they're in enemy in their their eyes enemy territory and we've seen this even behind them in rear rear lines there's ukrainian resistance you call them what you will this is the the myth that russia went into ukraine to liberate anybody and they were they weren't met by parades they were met by ak-47s and rpgs yep uh all right john spencer thank you so much uh retired u.s army major and chair of urban warfare studies at the madison policy forum Well, the latest episodes of the Harry and Meghan documentary series are now out on Netflix. Allegations of 
screaming and bullying are being made by Harry as he details the split, his split and his wife's split with the royal family. Now, he says it was terrifying to have William, his brother, scream at him. And like anything, though, there are two sides to what's been happening. Sandro Manetti is a royal expert, filmmaker and journalist. He's also a trustee of the Queen's Charity in America, the Royal Society of St. George. Thank you so much for joining us. So from Harry and Meghan, uh, stories of being screamed at, uh, do you give credence to those stories? Or do you think they're over-dramatizing it a bit? nonsense. Prince Harry served for 10 years in the British Army. Thank you for your service, Harry, including two tours in Afghanistan. Yet he claims he was terrified by his brother screaming and shouting at him. Please, he's seen a lot scarier things than that. Overly <laughs> melodramatic. Okay. What, what is it you, you think they're trying, when I say they, of course, Harry and, and his wife, Megan, what is it that they're trying to accomplish with this series other than make money, I guess? Well, I think they've got a lot of bitterness and hatred and they're trying to embarrass the uh, the royal family. Um, there also is a theory they're maybe trying to set up an alternative royal family uh, here in, uh, in California uh, with its own agenda um, and presenting the alternative, if you like. But uh, all these truth bombs uh, they're, lo- they're lobbing at Buckingham Palace don't appear to have much evidence behind them. Wait, I want to go back to what you just said. What would an alternative yeah. royal family in California, of all places, what would that accomplish? What would that do? In 20 years' time, the most famous person in America will be Princess Lilibet, um, because the only royal princess born in California. You know, imagine who's go- who she's going to date. She's going to be a huge socialite. Uh, she has such an opportunity. She has all that fame. And so, yes, this is not this is a generational thing we're, uh, we're talking about here. So if Meghan and Harry uh, stay, they do actually have an alternative, um, you know, to, to set up a new, a new dynasty uh, here in the States. Um, but there's only room for one royal family. And I would point out that in the last couple of hours, the, uh, the senior royals over in London have been putting on a united front they all appeared at westminster abbey at a christmas carol concert where they were all get this singing from the same hymn sheet how is that for wow <laughs> <laughs> so the royal family uh do they have a concern here that uh, you know you're talking about setting up an alternative royal family here in california but you know there's also uh they might see as a danger of uh, a child growing up outside the machinery of the royal family in england and that there's a lot more chance for this person to get in trouble to cause scandal etc as if the royal family itself has not also had lots of scandals to deal with you said at the uh, the start of the report there are two sides to every story. There's only one being heard in this documentary, of course. Um, the, uh, the the royals not even dignifying uh, this uh, bunch of nonsense with a with a credit with a comment. Um, and uh, yes, indeed, uh, Harry claims that the uh, the senior royals were upset and jealous at Meghan's popularity, and so pursued a vendetta uh, against her, um, which eventually drove them uh, out of the country. He makes that claim with no particular evidence, um, and. And he says that uh, Meghan couldn't have done any more and uh, and did the job harder. Uh, well, you know, Meghan, Meghan was great, but you can't say she took on as many royal duties as the likes of Princess Anne, you know, uh, probably a tenth of, of the amount that she took on, of course. So, uh, yes, two sides to every story. And why the, while the royals are in a bit of a PR difficulty here because they have a tradition of uh, never com- 
complain, never explain, but the never complain message doesn't seem to have got through to Harry, who has spent six hours whinging about his horrible life here in lovely California. You know, he uh, he says, uh, I believe in the documentary, that at one point he wanted to visit his grandmother uh, when, of course, she was alive, uh, Queen Elizabeth, yes. and that the palace stopped him from doing that. Does that even sound credible to you? Absolutely not. And here's why. Um, because there uh, is a whole bunch of uh, staff ar- around uh, around the Queen and they are there to basically put her wishes in action. So they may have made excuses to him. But if the Queen wanted to see him, should have seen him. Absolutely. The Queen always got what she wanted. Um, but the way he has interpreted it is all these barriers were, were put in, in my path. But as someone who's been around the uh, the royals and reported them for decades, it just doesn't work like that. In other words, what you're saying is if it's true that he didn't get to see her when he wanted to, it would have been because she just didn't want to see him. 100 percent. Okay. What do you make of the recent uh, allegations about uh, some racist attitudes, racist comments, some racism uh, being expressed by the royal family? Um, I think the way it was presented in the uh, Netflix series, especially in episode three, where we saw uh, the slave trade linked to Brexit, therefore linked to Meghan Markle, was uh, a bit too much of a reach. Um, the Commonwealth uh, is a uh, wonderful uh, in- institution, not to be confused with the British Empire, uh, which you know has a very embarrassing history. Um, also, um, London is an incredibly multicultural city, and the way it was presented in this documentary, uh, you'd have thought that America had no racism problems at all compared with Britain. I'd argue that's definitely not the case. Did, in the end, uh, Harry and Meghan get what they were hoping to get in terms of of, look, we're all talking about it. I'm looking at some TV screens here in the studio. I see uh, the story is up on uh, CNN right now. So uh, in terms of marketing, they pulled it off, didn't they? Well, uh, they uh, live in America, such a a land of uh, free speech. You know, they uh, wanted to uh, broadcast their truth. Uh, They certainly did broadcast their truth as they see it. Personally, I think it's a sad spectacle. I think these issues should have been worked out on a psychiatrist's couch, not on a TV studio. Uh, for the entertainment of the of, of the masses. But uh, there you go. What they've done is um, they have uh, put the royal family at war with each other. Uh, you know, it's the US side of it versus Britain. Uh, the late queen, you know, she lived a life uh, devoted to uh, duty, uh, service and dignity. All right, There's very, not much dignity on display here. Very quickly, I wanted to ask you, with, you know, a new king is on the throne, King Charles, and uh, may have some of his own ideas, uh, different ideas than uh, previously we saw in the royal family. Is there a chance that perhaps they might change their tack a little bit and maybe respond in a similar method, maybe put on their own show? It's a it's a great question. And I would say no, because every time the royal family has gone in front of the TV cameras, especially Charles, it's proved to be a disaster. Um, You know, you think back to the Prince Andrew special when Prince Charles uh, did his own TV special in the mid 90s. You know, he admitted infidelity. It always backfires. Stay remote. Don't do a TV special. They were cheered lovingly by the British public tonight. Uh, It's actually worked in their favor. I think the British public, at least, loves the royals more than they ever have before because they see them under an unjustified attack that's the view over there you you know you would think that charles would be better on tv because if i'm not mistaken when he was younger wasn't he like sort of heavily involved or tried to get involved in theater 
Oh, well, well remembered. Yes, indeed. You know, he uh, he wanted to be uh, an actor, but it was pointed out to him that, uh, no, he was uh, he was born to the throne. And so it was a life of duty and service uh, for him. He did not have the opportunity to break away. And uh, and he was heir to the would be heir to the throne, just as just as William is is now. Uh, Harry being the spare, which is the title of his book coming out on January the 10th, you know, has the opportunity to be a bit more of a rebel when you're Charles, when you're William, you're next in line you can't do that and that's part of the uh the wonderfully dramatic drama which is being played out across the ocean all right thank you so much uh sandro manetti royal expert filmmaker and journalist so uh charles might have been an actor we, he could have been he could have been in one of the batman movies he uh, could have been the next superman he could have been in the crown <laughs> <laughs> that is it for today's knx in-depth 